Hello and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My name is Lee Younger. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is a message I gave on Sunday morning, January 14th, 2023, from the Gospel of John in chapter 1. In the four accounts of the life and the ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus 20 times says two little words that were an invitation, they were also a challenge, they would become a pivot point for a person's entire life if they said yes. The two words were, follow me, follow me. For people who said yes to these two words of Jesus, there would be like a volcanic interruption into whatever their life was before that time to whatever it was going to be now. Whatever direction they were going, whatever destination they had in mind, Jesus was saying, turn off of that and walk behind me, walk with me, join me and accompany me to an entirely different place. Whatever your influences were that helped you see the world in the way that you've always seen it, the issues that you face in the ways that you see them, Follow me now, as I show you the way that I see the world, as the way that I see the issues at hand. Um, We are going to look at, um, for a while, these different times that Jesus said, follow me, and what was at stake, and what did it take to follow him, and what happened when people said yes. This one that we're going to look at today, it is a, it's like a tiny, tiny little scene. It's like one sentence, pretty much. And yet, and it seems like it's so quick and it's so little, and what, what is in here? What's happening? And I think there's actually a whole world of stuff that we need to understand here. So join me as we read in John chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, I'll just read it. Here it goes. This is verse 43, one little verse. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Great job. We we tried to to bring that up last week. Everybody did such a great job. Way to go. Some people are saying thanks be to God, not only for the scriptures, but for the hope of snow. And I know how you teachers are. Everybody, it's like the kids are excited. Nobody is as excited as the teachers. Angie asked me a little while ago, is it okay to pray for snow? Angie, the, the book of Hebrews says you can go into the throne of grace with confidence, so you get to pray for whatever you want to. Um, and if it's staying home and drinking a cup of coffee while it snows outside, then you go for it. Um, but that was really great. Yes, we are super thankful for this word. Um, this seems like such a quick thing. Jesus decided to leave from there, and he goes into Galilee, and he finds Philip, and he says, follow me. So, um, what else? Like, what, what, what are we supposed to get out of this? And I, like I said earlier, I think there is a whole world of stuff to understand about this. And we are going to get into it by getting to know Philip first, okay? But before we do that, I have a question, and it's an answer out loud question, okay? And like we've said before, this is still part of the worship time. So earlier when we were worshiping, you were singing, and I hope you were clapping your hands. And now, if something moves you in any of these words, if something warms your heart, or if you have an agreement, then you can let your brothers and sisters know by saying amen or mm or something like that. Sometimes people, they, you know, they're a little nervous about it, so they'll text me amen. And I've gotten some amen texts. And I would say, you know, it's baby steps. It's your getting there. Okay, so here's my question. 
Okay, have you ever found yourself in the midst of a conversation and you have no idea what the person's talking about? Like, you're just like completely in over your head. Like, I have no idea where this is going or what's happening. Um, I find this happening to me a lot, um, especially as I get older. This is happening to me a lot. I have a lot of friends, and I guess it's because of the town we live in. I have a lot of friends who are engineers, and that's some of you in this room. And when I'm talking to one of you, like, one-on-one, you lovely engineers, most of you have the ability to, like, you know, decide to speak English with me which is really cool. That's a really kind thing because that's the language that I speak. But then when I hang out with a few of you together and you're talking about things like radial load bearing and transmission errors and angular mass and like failure thresholds and I'm like, y'all are making that stuff up. There's no way any of that is real. And I don't know what's happening. I just have to get a translator or something. But another thing about my life is that I am a volunteer Young Life leader. So I have a lot of friends who are high school people. And the older you get, the harder it is to understand what high school people are talking about. Can any of y'all, have any of y'all experienced this where you're listening to teenagers talk and you're like, no clue, didn't get any of that. Like last year, the Merriam-Webster word of the year last year was the word riz. You guys know this? The Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Um, It's spelled R-I-Z-Z and uh, apparently it means like your ability to be attractive and attract someone to you romantically. They think it comes maybe possibly from the word charisma. And like when I was a teenager, the word for that was the word game. Like, oh man, dude, you got no game, dude. You're never gonna get a date because you have no game. And the thing with Riz is, it's not that you either have Riz or don't have Riz, like with game, you either have W-Riz or L-Riz, which refers to winning and losing. So you can't say to a teenager, oh, that person has no Riz. They'll be like, please don't do that. Which, by the way, is there anything more awkward or cringe than a middle-aged guy using, like, teenage slang? It's like the worst thing ever. So if I were to deploy a sentence like, Hey, gang, no cap. She slayed in that drip. You know what I'm saying? She got W, Riz. Like, they're just squirming over there. Like, please, please don't do that. My apologies. We're going to recenter. If you would like a translation of that sentence, then please see one of these young people at the conclusion of the service. They can tell you what I said. Um, The thing... The thing about getting to know this guy, Philip, that Jesus, to whom Jesus said, follow me, is that as you see Philip throughout the accounts of Jesus and his life and his ministry, you get the feeling that he was kind of always in over his head. Like he just didn't really know what was going on or what, how to answer the question. Like right after this happens, right after Jesus says, follow me, look at this, verse 44, Philip Like Andrew and Peter was from the town of Bethsaida, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you would think that would be really exciting news. And if they were friends, that Nathanael would be like, wow, Philip, that's amazing. Thank you for telling me the most life-changing news that anyone has ever said to me in my entire life. But no, what he says is, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And you get the feeling that Philip's one of these guys that, like, he doesn't really hang out with the cool kids, so every time he opens his mouth, people are like, you're an idiot, dude. 
Like, you, just shut up. Like, why are you talking about that? And it's like, that's the, that's the thing he gets shot back. And Philip doesn't really seem to have an answer for him. He doesn't say, well, you should get to, like, you should hear the things that Jesus says. And you should hear the things that people are saying that he's starting to do and all this kind of stuff. He just says, uh, uh, well, you just come and see. He doesn't really seem to have an answer. The next time you see Philip is in John chapter 6. They're in Bethsaida, where Philip is from, and thousands and thousands of people have come to hear Jesus speak and teach. And he's healing people. All these things are happening, and Jesus knows that they're hungry, so he turns to Philip and he says, hey, you're from here. Where should we like, go buy food for these people to eat? And Philip's like, uh, what are you talking like? What? Like, what's the best bakery in Bethsaida? Like, what are we talking about? If you had six months wages, you couldn't give everybody like a tiny little bite. And then John says, he was just messing with Philip, like we all do. Like, he, he already knew what he was going to do. And so he's just, he's just saying this to like test him or whatever. The next time you see Philip is in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, and he is announcing himself as the king of Israel, and, and all these people are talking about him, and he's doing all these amazing things, and there's not, and everybody in the country basically is in, is there in the capital city for the feast of Passover. It would be like if everybody in Tennessee went to Nashville at the same time for a week, Everybody's there, and foreigners from different countries are also there, and they're hearing about Jesus, they're hearing about all the things that he's done, and some of the foreign people grabbed Jesus' disciples, grabbed Philip, and said, hey, I know we're not from around here, but like, can we see Jesus? Like, can we talk to him? Can you hook that up? You're one of his people, right? Like, we would like to see him. And Philip doesn't know the answer. He's just like, uh, let me grab Andrew. And so he grabs Andrew, and Andrew's like, let's go. And Andrew and Philip take them to see Jesus. The next time you see Philip, the last time you really see him, is a couple of days later in the, their uh, last dinner with Jesus in the upper room, and they're having their Passover feast. And Jesus is saying some things to these guys, and they're having a hard time coping with it. He tells them that he's going to go away, and he's going to prepare a place for them that he could go and get them and bring them, that they could always be where he is. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you would know the Father too. And, you know, and, and Philip is like, uh, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. And Jesus is like, Philip, have I been with you so long? And you don't realize that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. How can you say to me, show us the Father? Every time you see this guy, he just seems to not really know the answer to the issue. He seems to kind of be in just a little bit over his head. And not only that, that's it. That's all you get of Philip. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention him, except in the list of the disciples. No more stories. Nothing else about him. No amazing things that he said. No great question that he asked that led Jesus to say or do this amazing thing. No, you, these guys never even talk about him. You get the feeling that he's the kid that comes out of the line at, in the middle school cafeteria with his tray. And he's like, oh, Lord, if you give me this, I'll never ask for anything again. Please don't make me sit by myself. Give me an opening at a table with some cool people. Does anybody remember that feeling in middle school, by the way? 
Just walking out of the line with your tray and being like, please, 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 please don't make me sit at a lame table. You know, when you look at the painting of the Leonardo da Vinci Last Supper painting, they're all sitting at the same table together. And that was a pretty big house where they had that dinner. And I get the feeling that, that based on you know, where these guys were staying, they probably didn't always have a 13-top table everywhere they ate. And I guarantee you Philip wasn't at the Jesus table with when, whenever they split the tables up. With, you know, that was Peter and Andrew and James and John. Philip had to eat over there with like Bartholomew, you know, and <laughs> Thaddeus, you know. He's with those guys. He's not at the table with Jesus. I, I, another question, and this is an answer out loud question. Do you know what it feels like to be just on the outside of like the cool people or whatever? You guys know this feeling? Yeah. Um, do you, have you had the sense before that, like whether it's in your family or your group of friends or, or the people that you're around that like, you're like an understudy in a room full of stars? Like everybody's gifted and amazing and they all have these incredible stories that they tell and when they tell them, everybody laughs and they're just like, the cut up and they're, you know, they're just amazing people and you're just like a guy or a girl? Do y'all know this? Okay, question. Just any kind of response that comes to your head on this. What does that feel like? Anybody? Depressing, what? what did you, was that you? Oh, it was Lauren? Oh, Connie. It feels like crap. Thank you, Connie, that's perfect. Yes, and I heard lonely, yeah. That's really good. It, it, it feels like crap, it, feel, it sucks, it's terrible. To feel like I'm just on the outside of everybody who gets it. Like I'm, I'm just, I, I never quite say the right thing or I'm just, I'm, I'm the understudy in a room full of stars and everybody's cool and everybody's got it and I'm just kind of not. It's, um, when, I was, when I was a young person, when I was in high school, I kind of like looked at my own life and valued myself on three big things. The three big things that I did in my life were that I was, I was a musician and I was an athlete technically and I was a visual artist. Um, yeah, I, I was on the football team. I was on the Oak Ridge football team technically. And, but I was, but I was like, I held the record for like, I played in more JV games than anybody that, that ever wore the Cardinal in gray. I was like a scout team legend. And if you don't know American football and you don't know what a scout team is, that's not good. You don't want to be a legend on the scout team. Um, I was in a band in high school for all four years of, of high school. We played a lot of shows and wrote a lot of music and wrote a lot of songs and stuff. And my senior year, I decided I'm going to audition for the talent show at the high school. And not only did I not win the talent show, I didn't get in off the audition. They told me, they said, uh, as I got ready to go, they said, what song will you be singing? I said, this is an original composition. They said, you know, no one has ever auditioned or played an original composition in the Oak Ridge Talent Show. I was like, that's really cool. And then I didn't get called back. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, I, I was a visual artist my entire life growing up. 
And when, when you're the person in your family that can draw, then everybody, that's, you just start to see yourself that way. And then you're the person in class that can draw, and then everybody sees you that way. And I, I was told by my teacher that I should go out for what this thing called governor's school, which is something that, that state colleges do in Tennessee, where different, um, you know, different academic disciplines or different parts of the arts, you basically go to, well, you do, you go to the, that school, and you live there on campus in a dorm for a month and take collegiate-level classes in this thing that you accept. At. And so I put together my portfolio. We went to Farragut High School and we got judged and we had the interviews and I didn't make it. And everything that I valued myself for, I was right on the outside. Scout team and don't make the audition and don't make the governor's school. It's a terrible feeling. Um, one of the things that I can tell you after working with young people for over 20 years is if you feel like you're the person on the outside and you feel like you know how it feels to feel lonely and passed over, you know that crappy feeling, but that other kid doesn't because they're always the starter and the star and they're always awesome. I can tell you working closely with, with young people for over two decades, almost all of them feel that way. The star quarterback, the homecoming queen, they all feel it. This is a common thing where we look at everybody else's lives and we feel like they get it, they're on the inside, they're the star, they're the thing, and this, and I feel like I'm on the outside. Is there an amen from anybody in this place about that? This is a common thing that we all feel. What's really interesting is if you just open up the Gospel of John and you just start reading, about halfway through the first chapter, you have a parade of the brightest stars in the Jesus movement. Like, it starts with John. John, the mystic poet who wrote five books in the New Testament, including the beautiful Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, and he goes and finds Jesus. He goes with his buddy Andrew, Andrew the great evangelist. Every time you see Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus that they might get to know him. And then, and then Andrew goes and tells his brother Simon, and Simon goes and finds Jesus. And then it's like, like when, when John and Andrew went to find Jesus, he turns around and says, they have this incredibly deep conversation where he says, what are you seeking? And they're like, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And they spent the whole rest of the day together talking about like what? I would love to know what the rest of that day was like. They go get Simon and then Simon goes and finds Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, I'm changing your name to Rock. You, I see something in you. You are a rock. It's these amazing people. And Simon Peter would go on to be like the leader of the whole thing. One time he preached a sermon and 3,000 people came to know Jesus. You're like, These are, this is a parade of the brightest stars in the Jesus movement. And they go and find Jesus and they have these deep conversations. Names get changed. All this kind of stuff. And then we get to Philip. Philip, who three of the gospel writers don't even tell us anything about. Philip, who always seems to just be kind of right on the outside, kind of missing it or not getting it. But the beautiful thing about this story is the script up, to, up until this point is these people hear about him and they go and find Jesus and they have these amazing conversations. But with Philip, it's the opposite. Did you catch it? The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him. Jesus was down there in Judea where John the Baptist was baptizing the Jordan River. He went 70 miles to find Philip and he said to him, I want you on my team, dude. Follow me. 
And Philip said yes. We know he said yes because he's in the list of the guys. He's one of the guys. Jesus wanted him. He went a mighty long way to find him. And he put him on his team. And immediately, Philip does this amazing thing, which is he goes and tells somebody else, you've got to come and see about this guy who wanted me. He wanted me on his team. And we are finding him to be the one, the one Moses wrote about, the one about whom the prophets wrote. Um, I was thinking about this amazing thing that Philip does as soon as he starts to follow Jesus, that he goes and finds Nathaniel and he tells him about Jesus. When I was growing up in my like church experience and context and different churches that I went to, like the most important thing that, that I remember them talking about was witnessing. Anybody grow up in a situation like this? Witnessing. Every single Sunday morning when I was a little kid and you would go to Sunday school, they would ask you, how many times did you witness this week? And what they mean by that is, how much did you share the story of Jesus with somebody else? Now, let me pause real quick so I don't get, so everybody can, we can have an understanding about what I'm not saying. I think telling people about Jesus is extremely important. I think people have to hear the story of Jesus. They have to hear it from somebody who knows it and knows him and loves him. There could be nothing more important than for someone to hear about Jesus. The difficulty for me when I was coming up was it was like the only thing that anybody ever talked about. And if I didn't do it, I felt terrible. I actually had one Sunday school teacher who had a uh, poster board. And across one axis of the poster board was all the weeks of the semester. And across the other axis was all the people that came to Sunday school. And if you showed up to Sunday school, they put a gold star in that box for that week. And then they asked the question, did you witness to somebody this week? And if you witnessed, then they put a check mark in there. Now, I always got a gold star because I don't think we ever miss church once. Um, but I didn't get a lot of check marks. And it made me feel some sort of way because everybody can see it. There's no check marks beside your name. Um, and it made me feel a certain way about sharing my story. I was thinking about this this week, and I realized two things about that experience. One, for me personally, and maybe this is somebody else in this room, shame and embarrassment are a terrible motivator. They are terrible. That is a terrible way to motivate someone to change their behavior, is shame or embarrassment. Two, the sense that I had when I was growing up was, I don't think I share very much or, or witness very much because I don't feel like I have a story to tell. Like, I felt like whenever we heard people's stories, it was the most extreme, amazing stories about people who had been through incredible suffering or had come out of addiction, incarceration, or had given their lives for Jesus in unbelievable ways or died for, you know, all these things, which are amazing. But it made me feel like I'm a kid who's only lived in rural towns and suburbs, and I've been to church every week in my life, and at a certain point, I started to follow Jesus. Who wants to hear that story? I just don't have a story to tell. And then I look at this guy who's just a normal guy. He's not the leader of the thing. He's not the amazing poet. He sometimes seems like he's in over his head, and yet he had a story that was worth telling. You know what his story was? Jesus wanted me. And he came a mighty long way to find me. And now, and look at this. This is in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one. Jesus wanted me. He came a mighty long way to find me. And now I am part of a we. 
I'm part of a family. I'm part of a community. And we are finding out that he is the one. The answer that the human heart has always wanted, we're finding out. And Philip, as he followed Jesus, was going to experience words and moments that were going to blow the doors off of his mind and change his life forever. The thing I want you to know is that if you've ever felt like you're on the outside or you don't know how to answer all the questions or you don't know if you really have a story to tell, if you don't know if you're maybe an understudy in a room full of stars, you have a story. If you've followed Jesus, your story is Jesus wanted you and he came a mighty long way to find you. Way, way farther than from Judea to Galilee. He came from heaven and he went all the way through death and back to life to find you so that you could be on his team. And now you are part of a we and we are in a family together. And I want as many people to be in this family as we can possibly get. You have a story to tell and it's a story worth telling. Um, we are about to share communion together. And I was thinking this week that the entire time that I was growing up, I always called it communion, where we remember the death of Jesus, how he, gave his, how he came here and he gave his life to pay the penalty of our sins. We, I always called it communion as a kid. And then when I started coming to Christ's community, when I was in high school, I heard, um, I, was in a, I, was, I was in the band, and so I was hanging around when all the stuff would get set up, and it was always uh, Tina Job that would set up the communion. It still is, by the way. And... Tina would say, she would ask me sometimes, oh, um, can I get up to the church because uh, this week is Lord's Table? She always called it Lord's Table. I'd never heard it called that before. Um, I'd always heard it called communion. And I don't know if I've heard, ever heard anybody besides Aunt Tina call it Lord's Table, but that's what she always has called it is Lord's Table. And this week, I am going to call it Lord's Table with Tina, and here's why. Because if you've ever felt like you don't belong at the cool kid's table, you belong at the Lord's table. Because Jesus wanted you. He came a mighty long way to find you. And now you are part of a we. And we are finding him to be the one, the answer to everything the human heart has ever longed for. You have a story worth telling. And we, as we remember what Jesus has done for us and how he's brought us into this family, we invite you to come you don't have to be a member of Christ's community or anything like that. All we ask is that you know that at some point in your life, you've said to him, I want to follow you. I want you to forgive me. I believe that you have come for me, that you've died for me, and I want to be a part of this family. The gift you're offering, I take it. If you've never done that before now, you could do it right now and then come up and take. Would you come? We invite you. i
everything Handmade my heart and he cherishes, treasures me Gave life and blood, he is my friend and I